A few weeks ago, I, I started this series on dealing with the incarnation, and that is that Christ came and that God came, that he was fully God, fully man. You could read through all of, of John in the first chapter, John chapter 1, and it talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was from the very beginning, and, and the Word beginning there from the very eternal beginning, not just the beginning of as one point in time. He was eternal, but then at the point of creation, he was an integral part of creation as the very word that proceeded from God. And he's our light that has shone into darkness, and that plays a key into what we're going to talk about today. All of this is, is going into the fact that it was is important for us to look at as we go into Christmas season, the fact that he is God. He's not just a baby, but the fullness of God dwelt in him and the importance of that. Because if we didn't have Christ, who is fully God and fully man, we wouldn't be able to enjoy the salvation and the relationship with God that Christ won for us. Because being fully God, he was able to be um, being able to be fully God. He was able to be, live this perfect life and he was able to basically save us because of his perfect life. But because he was fully man, he was able to fully pay through the blood and through his body that God demanded. So he was the perfect answer for our greatest need. It's glorious. It's amazing. And that comes to this text that we have this morning in verse 14. And it tells us about this great, the greatness of his incarnation in one verse. And it says this, And the Word, that is Christ, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, that he tabernacled, he tented with us, he came to live among us. That means he came to live as our life lives. He moves with us as the tent moved with Israel. As God dwelt with Israel in that tent, so does God dwell with us. And it says, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Or in other translations, we have beheld his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we spent a lot of time talking about that he became flesh, and he dwelt among us, that flesh, Christ, Jesus, Jesus in the form of a baby came humbly to live so he could die and be the savior of the world. I don't know about you, but as we look at life and as we looked at Christmas, Christmas is a time where a lot of artificial passions basically are produced and it covers up a lot of emotions and we use Christmas to cover up and to look for joy and to look for peace, we want something to cover up everything that we, we just want to relax and get away from the world and stop and either see family or some of us want to get away from family. But we want to stop and relax and we just want to find that joy. And the, and the question is, is what stirs up your passion? What brings you passion? I, I'm, I'm always... There's a question that comes up often. It's like, Pastor, why are you so passionate 
about the Lord? Or why are you so passionate about talking about Christ all the time? Why is it always the gospel? Why, why is it? It's because there's something about that that is so glorious. It's above, it transcends, it's above all the things of the world. And it's funny because as we look at our passions, what stirs your passions? There's a lot of things. There's a, there's a pandemic that's coming to an end here quickly. You know, football season's almost over. <laughs> you know, the best thing about my favorite team not being in the playoffs is that football is no longer stressful. <laughs> right? But here's the thing is, is what stirs your passion? Right? Uh, many times I will be watching football, and, and Anissa realizes that it's just so that way I fall asleep. I just relax. But, you know, Jared will scream or yell, and I'm like, okay, what happened? Oh, good, all right, I'll go back to sleep. <laughs> it's like I get the highlights, you know, in our home. I was that way one time. I've relaxed a lot in the last few years. I used to scream and yell and punch our ceiling fan, you know, I jump up and scream, uh, you know, but what stirs your passion? We imitate a lot of the world's passions. It's so easy to jump in with our passions into the world. We devote our energies, our emotions to things that are not even worthy of our attention. Easy come, easy go, and we devote our passions to it, but yet it's all fleeting, it's going, it's falling away. We do things to stir our artificial passions. And in all of this, the more we try to stir up artificial passion, it forms false worship. When we begin to worship those things as things that we have to have in order to have a passionate life. And the Bible tells us that as we form those worship attachments, that we become idolatrous. We idolize those things. And it can form that. In the, as we look at the intro, and in history, there was a time where this began to happen. And as the, as the birth of the national church or or in Catholicism, it began to come out, and, and there was a lot of stirring and artificial passions. If you pay these indulgences, we'll forgive you, and, and, you can, and you can find joy and peace in knowing that you've paid a price, or if you do penance. And there was all these things, and it began to muddy the waters, and people began to lose interest in God, and they began to develop other passions, and so in those times, they came up with this term, soli de gloria, basically saying this, and it was part of a five-sola set. And that was simply this, is that glory to God alone. There's not glory in the national church. There's not glory in some type of laws and religion. That the glories and passions in our life solely are in God alone. As we began to deal with salvation, and they saw that salvation began, they said salvation's in the church, or salvation's in the pope, or salvation's in the priests that you have, they are the form of salvation. And so they came up with these solas, like we sang, in Christ alone, that's one of them, sola Christa, and that is, it's in Christ alone, it's all about Christ. 
And it's dealing with self-gratification. They began to, during the, you know, during the, the Reformation movement, the men began to realize that everything was about self-gratification and the glorification of self. And the church bought into that. And so they began to try to reform the church. And they said, no, glory is in God alone. And that's basically the intent here. As John says, that as the word became flesh, and we have seen or we have beheld his glory, this glory that is of God and God alone. The term beheld, um, in your, if you have the New King James, it says beheld. If you have the ESV, it says have seen. I'm not sure what the NASV, I didn't look it up. But really, the idea of beheld is better The term there is the careful, deliberate, and lengthy gaze which interprets its object. Beheld, it's it's actually, in English, it's where we get the idea of theatrical spectacle, a spectacle theater. Or, you know, when a really good movie, when when there's a movie that capitates, or not decapitates, captivates all of your attention... You know, that movie that everybody talks about, you're like, man, that movie was amazing, right? That's the idea of this this verse. It's this careful, deliberate. It's not just, oh, yeah, you know, look at that. Isn't that great? No, it's a deliberate gaze. It's a lengthy gaze. It's a gaze that says, I cannot stop looking at it. Think about John. The Apostle John, he was on the Mount Transfiguration. He saw when Christ revealed his glory, the glory that was from the Father. He beheld it. He was amazed. And they said, hey, let's build the church right here because we have seen God's glory. And Jesus is like, no, the glory is in what I was called to do and to bring the gospel, to spread God's glory to all, to show it's amazing as they talk about this idea. In fact, the point of here is not a mere glance, but a long and lengthy gaze. It's basically John saying, we saw it in our life, and our deliberate intent in our life was to gaze forever at that glory. The glory changed John. That's why he said, I beheld his glory. It's interesting as John talks about God's glory over and over, along with God's truth. John chapter 8, talking and Jesus talking in verse 4, he says, but I do not seek my glory. And when he talked about that, he's not seeking earthly glory. You remember, everybody wanted to put Jesus on the throne to overthrow Rome. And and they thought that's what was glorious. And that's what Jesus came to do. And he goes, no, it's not to be earthly glorified. He says, there is one who seeks. He goes on in verse 50. One who seeks and judges. Going down to verse 54. And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If it is my Father who glorifies me, whom you say he is our God. It's all about God's glory. Piper gave a really good definition, John Piper, talking about the glory of God. And 
How do we define it? The glory of God is so difficult to define. He defined it very well, and so I'm not going to try to repeat it but it's, or trying to change it, but it's this. It's, it's the infinite beauty and greatness of the manifold perfections in God. It's the manifold. It's the greatness. It's the heaviness of the perfections of God. It's interesting because the Hebrew use, by the way, of glory when, when they use the word glory, um, the Hebrew use of glory is honor and to exalt someone. And it's a heavy weight of importance, value, and profound dignity. The concept is really of being heavy. When it's saying glory, it's of, of heavy importance. And it's not talking about just like this weight, like a weight. But you know the weight, like when you feel a weight on you? like a weight of responsibility? Well, when it talks about glory, it's talking about the heaviness of God, this weight, this immense, this immenseness of who God is. It just weighs on you. It's just beyond amazing, beyond importance. It just smacks you in the face. It's like, this is important. So when John is talking about Jesus, he's saying, I have... Jesus came and he dwelt among us. And he says, and I beheld this glory. I've seen this glory. I have seen what is so amazing and I've seen what's so important. As we talk about this glory, you're going to see all through Scripture two aspects of God's glory. And these two aspects and this is all introduction, introduction, but then we're going to talk about the, what does this mean to us in the conclusion. So I'm trying to go quickly so we can get to how it affects us. But there's these two aspects of God's glory. We have ascribed glory and we have intrinsic glory. And we'll discuss that, what that means. But ascribed glory is the worship and honor and praise and adoration we give to God. It's praising God. It's worshiping God. It's when worship, it's worth of worship. It's not the worth of a ship, but it's worship. It's basically saying we are proclaiming how much something is worth, right? That's why some people can worship football. That's all they will do for all their life. They're just football, football, football. That's why we say some people worship money because their whole life is bent around money. That's why we talk about some people worship things because they put all their life on that thing. When we ascribe glory, we are saying how, how much worth God is. We praise him. We're saying how great he is. We adore him. We are saying we love him. We can't do anything without him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 speaks of this. And he says, for God said, let the light shine out of darkness. Talking about God's glory shining and he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Christ, when God gave us Christ, he gave us the knowledge of his glory to be able to see God's glory, to ascribe, so we can ascribe the glory of God. Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. Over and over and over, he said, we are going to preach Christ. It's all about Christ. George Whitfield said, if you want to be a great preacher, preach Christ. 
Don't just preach them once. Preach them in the morning. Preach them at lunch. Preach them in the evening. Preach Christ 24-7 every single day of the week, and you will be a great preacher. Because there is nothing, we do not know anything of God's glory without Christ. We need Christ. Some people ask, why do you always talk about the gospel? Why do you preach and magnify and talk about Christ? Because we behold God's glory through Christ. Because he alone is glorious. In fact, Psalm 19, the psalmist said in verse 1, the heavens decry or declare the glory of God. They ascribe, the heavens ascribe. And when we look up into the heavens, we're like, wow, it's amazing. Right? When we saw the sunsets and we see those beautiful pictures that people post on Facebook of all the sunsets, the sunsets over the mountains, the sunsets over the, over the, over the farms. And I just, you just sit there and you look and you're just like, this is amazing. That's how we ascribe. When, when uh, think about Isaiah, when he was lifted up to heaven and he got to see God's glory, what did he do? He fell on his face and he's like, I am not worthy. And verse 3 of chapter 6, he said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. He ascribed glory to God. You know, when we see God's glory, the passion stirred by clear vision of God's glory is amazing. And you know what? Sometimes we are all excited when passionate, when we, are, we see God's glory. But if we truly see all of God's glory, it's not necessarily warm and comforting. Many times people have seen God's glory, and what do they do? They fall flat on their face. The majority of people, when they see all of God's glory, when it shines brightly, Paul, when Jesus came and wrote, met him on the road to Damascus, and in his glory... Shining brightly, it threw Saul, then became Paul. We know Paul to the ground because of God's glory was so immense. It was so amazing. Right? It's not always comforting. It's not always feeling a feel good. In fact, it's much like the first time someone catches a glimpse of God's glory, they fall flat. And it's immense fear. And we begin to realize, have you ever hearts been troubled and think, Man, one day I'm going to give an account to God for the thing I just did. And all of a sudden this dread comes over you because God's glory is complete. It's amazing. It's earth shattering. The blaze of his glory will one day burn up this world in fire because of his glory. After he's taken all those that have put their faith and trust in him to the new heavens and new earth. But it brings us to the fact that it says that in Psalm 11, in verse 10, I almost read a 111, <laughs> but 11, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We begin to live our life wise because we fear the Lord. We realize his glory is vast. As we study scripture, we realize Fearing God helps us to understand God. Fearing God, it's not trembling. and It's not the fear of like some horror movie. It's the fear of the reality of his immensity and the breadth. It's like 
the first time you've seen a well when you're in the ocean. I'll never forget when I was fishing with in this 12-foot boat that was, I think, four and a half, five feet wide, and it was solid foam, so it did float. But I was in four miles out in this ocean, and a blue well came through, all of us fishing. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, how did that well miss? There's a bunch of boats. There's probably 30 boats out there fishing for salmon. I'm like, how did that well go right? He went right through us, and he never snagged one line. I was like, and that thing was huge. And it just brought this kind of fear over me, like, don't hit the boat. Don't hit the boat, because he is bigger than me. Or the time that the fog lifted, and we were a bunch of gray whales were all around us, and all these little whales. They were smaller whales, but there were a lot of them, and they were all blowing you know, their spouts. It was amazing. But as you ever, you know, the first time I met a grizzly bear, it, your, your heart just, you know, <laughs> when I lived in Alaska. But, and then I began to get used to them. But you had a fear and respect for them. It's, it's like that with the Lord. God's glory is beyond all that. And you have a fear and an awe of him. So you want to live for him. You, wanna, you don't want to disrespect him. You want to honor him. But when it, like I said to the kids earlier, when someone speaks, like in the Bible, when it speaks of giving glory to God, it's, it's talking about praising God. It's not adding to him. It's a common expression, like in Joshua 7, 19, when Joshua said to Achan, by the way, remember Achan stole uh, the, what was supposed to be given to God to glorify God for the win? And Achan said, oh, nobody will know. And he took treasure and he hid it in his house, right? And, and it found out and they lost the next battle. And, they, and he said, what happened? And, and God said, someone has dishonored me and did not fear me. In Joshua 7, 19, Joshua said to Achan, my son, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Like this common expression, is, it does not mean that we add something to God's glory or increase the splendor of his glory in any way by something we do. To give glory to God means to just simply give him praise. We glorify God not to make him more glorious than he is. That's impossible. It's just to declare with our lips, to reflect, and to say, here is God's glory. Our lives are meant to reflect it. That's what intrinsic glory is. Intrinsic glory is basically the sum and substance of all that God is. It's the all of who God is. It's the attributes of God. It's the essence of God. It's the holiness of God. It's the righteousness of God. It's the omnipotence of God. It's the omniscience of God. It's the omnipresence of God. It's the truth of God. It's the mercy, grace, kindness, wrath, and the truth. All of the attributes of God that come together in one complete description of his intrinsic glory. Intrinsic means that's who he is. There is nothing that you and I can do to add to the intrinsic glory of God. So we talk about God's glory, we, we, what John meant by when he beheld it, but look at the source of the glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. By the way, by saying the glory of, of Christ is the glory of the only begotten of the Father, the Greek term genus means one of a kind. He's saying 
that God, that Christ and the glory that comes from the only one-of-a-kind Father. It means Christ is God. Christ came from the one and only. He is saying that he is exact glory of God. It's not a different glory. It's not a glory that's just a siphoned off. So it's not a, a, like a, a giving, a, you know, sharing of glory. It's the glory of God. Paul affirms this many times in Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and so on. In all these epistles, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That the glory and the peace and the knowledge, all of it is tied up in God through Christ. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint and the exact nature. And he upholds the universe with the, by the word of his power. Speaking of Christ, that Christ is the exact imprint of God's own glory. That's what John is saying here. That this glory has come from God. By the way, there's moments when that glory came through, right? In John chapter 2, verse 11, remember when, when uh, Jim Hively preached and he talked about the, the miracle and uh, the water and the wine. And at the end of that, it says, In the beginning of the miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee do, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. They saw the glory of God. Matthew 17 and the fact that, that Peter, James, and John, they all went up to the Mount of Transfiguration and they beheld his complete glory. And it says, And he was transfigured before him, and his face did shine as the sun, and his remnant was white, his, his garments were white as snow, as white as light. It reflected light. In Luke 5, 8, when Jesus, or I'm sorry, when Peter saw Jesus' glory, Simon Peter saw it and he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am sinful. When he beheld the glory of God in Jesus, he fell down flat. He was the source. He recognized God's glory. That's why John, by the way, John continues to speak of God's glory and the fact that Jesus is God in 1 John 1, 2. He says this, and he says, The life was mani- made manifest, that's Jesus. His life was made manifest, and, he, and we have seen it. By the way, it's the same word, that we beheld it. And we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and is made manifest to us. He says this glory is from God. This solidifies the fact that Jesus is 100% man and he's 100% God. His glory is the aspect of all of that, that it's God's exact glory. He's glorious. That's why worshiping and and the name of Christ, that one day at the name of Christ, every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth. It doesn't matter. One of these days when everybody, when Christ returns, no matter whether they believe in him or not, they're going to bow because they're going to see all of his glory, and they will throw him down before him. You see the extent of his glory, and this is one of the most amazing things, that the extent of 
of the glory of Christ or the glory of the word is, is that it's full of grace and truth. If you look at verse 16 and 17, it says about this fullness of grace and truth. And this is an important statement. We see this all through the New Testament, and we see aspects of this all through the Old Testament. We don't have time to chase every single one of them, but it's different, and we're going to talk about that difference. And it says in verse 16 of our text in chapter 1, it says, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. From the fullness of God, of Christ's glory, out of God's glory, out of the fullness of His glory, we've received grace upon grace. We've received this richness of His grace. By the way, this idea of fullness means completeness. There's no, I mean, it's the full from eternity past to eternity future. It is full, never-ending grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. By contrast, you think about this, when it talks about Jesus came and he dwelt, he tabernacled, and he goes back to that idea when he talks about Moses. When Moses was given the law, when he was given the, the five commandments, when, he, when God said, here, pen the first five books of the Bible, we were, he, they were given the tabernacle and the, the place where the glory of God would dwell so they could make sacrifice where the law presided over all of Israel. And he gave us something far better. And he says, the law came through Moses, but we received the fullness of God's glory, his grace and truth. This is an amazing aspect. The tabernacle was just an, an, like a shadow of the perfect was to come. It was actually the foreshadowing of Christ. It only could hold the law and it could show that everybody was guilty under the law. But when Christ came, he didn't come with the law. He came with grace and he came with truth, which is interesting. When we have grace and truth, we are not here because of the law, which is interesting. John Fram, a theologian, he says, grace in the scripture refers to God's benevolence. When God came and he lived in the tabernacle, he was benevolent as they sacrificed, and the sacrifice of the animals released God's mercy on them, but they didn't have the grace that we have through Christ. They had the law to show that they were guilty. John Feinberg says this, as for the concept of grace, it's best understood as unmerited favor. The means that someone, something good happened to you, even though you have done nothing to merit or earn it. We have God's complete goodness in our life because of his glory, because we didn't earn it, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is a gift. It's not by works lest any man should boast, right? It's, it's glorious it's through the glorious grace of Christ. The problem is, is that many people want to emphasize the grace without the truth. Do you notice that God's glory, the fullness of God's glory in Christ came by grace and truth? And that is this. And sometimes people want to emphasize only truth. People that only want to emphasize only truth and the knowledge of the truth 
often lead to legalism. People that often want to just focus on grace often end in just pleasing themselves. It's all about pleasure and passions and emotions. So you're going to hear a message about feel good rather than knowing who God is and glorifying and worshiping the Lord. Because knowing God's glory brings the fullness of the help we need in our life. Uh, I found many theologians have put it this way. Um, John MacArthur, John Feinberg. Well, John MacArthur sat under John Feinberg's dad, so it's no wonder that both of them stayed it the same way. But many I found, uh, R.C. Um, Sproul, a bunch of other guys uh, say it this way, grace is the expression of God's, it's the outward, grace is the outward expression of God's character, and it's equal to the truth that is the complete self-intrinsic expression of God's complete glory. So grace is the, this outward expression. We, we experience God's favor in our life because of the gift of when Jesus died to pay for our sins, and he rose again and conquered death. So no longer living under guilt and shame, but have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that expression of grace when he saved us, for by grace are we saved. It's an expression of God's character, which is equal to the truth that this is who God, we are held accountable to who God is. We are not held accountable to whoever is in charge of the government, right? Because I don't think anybody really is in charge of the government, (laughs) But here's the everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and that's how we get our government. But here's the thing. God is truth. We have to have both in our life. God's glory is both grace and truth. As humans, because we are human and we're, in, we're fallible, we're not God, but we've been given God's glory And that's both grace and truth. As humans, we tend to err on one side or the other. If we stress grace, we are often too quickly to forgive without demanding any kind of repentance. But if we stress truth, we often sound harsh and unloving. We need both, don't we? We can't have one without the other. If we forgive too quickly, we may make light of the wrongdoing. If we judge too harshly, we, we make forgiveness impossible. It's impossible to forgive because we judge so harsh. Grace and truth, these two words explain exactly why Jesus came to earth. They go to the very heart of the good news that we have a Savior for our sin. We have a Savior. We don't have to try to earn favor with God. It's impossible because He is holy. His glory is unfathomable and it his, it penetrates and judges us. But when we have Christ, we have grace with that truth of that judgment. Because, of, because he was full of grace, not just partial grace. He wasn't just some, some mere man. He was full of grace and truth, the exact representation of God's glory. He died for you. He died for me. And we were, and yet we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
because he was full of truth. He was able to pay for our sins completely. He forgives the sinner because he bore the sin himself. Here is the truly good news for people like us. Because he is graceful or full of grace, you and I can come just as we are. And we are not going to be burned up in his glory. We come to him, the Father, and we say, forgive me. And he says, I love you with an everlasting love. And I can forgive you because I died for you to pay for your sin. He is easier to approach. And you don't have to clean yourself up first. Here's what I really want to get to in the last few minutes, and that is this. In conclusion, why is it so hard for people to respond? Why is it so hard for people to enjoy church? Not church as a building, an organization, or a religion, but the body of Christ, the people, the relationships. Why is it so hard to worship God, to want to come to church, to to read God's word, to spend time with God? Why is it so hard? It's because the flesh, just our normal passions, our desires in the body, we don't see God's glory. But the eyes of faith can. When we trust in the Lord with all our heart, and lean not our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him, he will direct our paths. We can see his glory. We, can be, we are touched. We are changed. We don't look at God the same anymore. Pastor, why are you so passionate? It's because I've beheld his glory. It's different than just going to church. It's different than just reading the Bible for knowledge to be a good person. It's different than just giving money in the offering plate. I don't give money in the offering plate just because, you know, that's what the religious thing to do is. It's because I'm saying, God, you gave me this and I'm honoring you with it. It's yours. That's why I like to give parts of my pigs away, sometimes whole ones. Easy, you know, sometimes it's easy come, easy go. And boy, does it taste good when it's given away because usually I cook it. (laughs) But, you know, or I get to, somebody cooks it for me. It's awesome to give glory to God. Say, God, you are awesome. I am nothing. This money is nothing. These possessions are nothing. You are everything. 2 Corinthians 5.16, I heard that amen. Because he is everything. And he's not proclaiming, this is not what I'm saying, this is what God is saying. 2 Corinthians 5.16, from now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. What he's, Paul is saying, once I looked at Christ and he was just a mere fleshly person, he was just a prophet. That's what he's saying. When he was Saul, he thought Jesus was nothing. But somebody who could teach and draw people's attention. But listen to what he said. He said, we regard him thus no longer because we've beheld his glory. What is the, when we have Christ, when we have put our, when we've submitted to Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, what glory do we have before us? We have this amazing glory, the glory of the wonderful person, the God and man who could save us. We have the glory of his perfect righteousness As our representative, he is standing there 
praying on our behalf, talking to God when, when we do something that we shouldn't do. And he goes, he belongs to me. I paid for that sin. I am speaking on his behalf. It's like when you have to go to stand before a judge and you know you're guilty and you're going to go to jail. And all of a sudden, somebody whisks in and says, no, I've already taken care of it. He goes free. We have the perfect righteousness, the perfect representative. He even gives us his goodness to us. The glory, we, when we have Christ, we have the glory of the sin-atoning sacrifice, the, the atoning sacrifice that paid for our sin. We have the glory of his sovereign dominion. If you didn't write fast enough, Susie, I got the notes. You can take my notes. <laughs> the glory of his sovereign dominion right? He is over all things. And, and when COVID is running rampant or silly government things are running rampant, when our life is just out of control, when our pigs break through the fence, when, <laughs> when something just doesn't work right, we know that God is over everything and that he hasn't lost control. And I can relax because he is in control. It doesn't mean I like it. Don't misinterpret those two things, right? You cannot like something but be content, right? We heard that three times because of the glory of the, of the Lord, of Jesus Christ. The tender sympathy that we have because of faith in Christ, Christ who is our comforter, who went through all that he did, tempted, lived through this earth, so he knows us. And he can comfort us. He's sympathetic to us. The glory of the heavenly intercession. The glory of the preserving Lord. He preserves us. And the glory of the final triumph when he comes and he takes us home. What a glorious meal that would be. The marriage supper of the Lamb. When we get a feast with Christ. Bride and groom together. For the first time. It's glorious, isn't it, Chris and Megan? (laughs) That commitment, it's something different. Wait, I can't wait for that glorious time when we come to Christ. By the way, if you're struggling and you're saying, I haven't seen the, this glory you're talking about, I just don't see it. It's because it's through faith. It's through submission. Maybe you're not submitting your life to the Lord. It's you're saying, I can do only do what I want to do to make myself feel better. That you'll not see the glory of God. Your flesh cannot see it. Only through trusting in the Lord will you see the glories of God. God's glory is everything we ought to pursue and love. When John said, I beheld his glory, I have seen it. It is everything that gaze. I long to look at it. It's everything I do. God's glory, we owe everything to God's glory. We ought to love it. We ought to long for it. It, it summarizes and incorporates everything that really matters from eternity past to eternity future. It's the only thing that makes the world and all the evil things in it endurable. It's God's glory. It's the ultimate purpose of our life. It's God's glory. God's glory reveals that His grace and truth are sufficient when we remove the flesh and we get, we get out of the way and, and we pursue God 
and we submit to God and we see his glory, we realize that his grace and truth is sufficient for all things. When we glorify self, when we make everything about us and we have to praise self, we find that life has little effect for long and eternal passions. We find that life is empty. But we find through Christ that glory of God is truly efficient. 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul realized, you know, Paul was the Jew of Jews. He was the up-and-coming chief priest of all of Israel. He was the most, you know, knowledgeable of all the laws, and everybody loved him. He was the protege of the protégés, everyone that he was looked up to, and he realized, you know what, when he came to Christ and he saw the glory of Christ, he realized that it was empty, it was nothing, it was garbage to him. Philippians chapter 3. But in 2 Corinthians, talking to the Corinthians, by the way, the Corinthian church had, you know, was the most wealthy area in the world at the time, and they had it all. And he said this to them, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, and he said, and talking about Jesus, he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would, I rather would glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power. What is the power? The power of Christ is the glory of Christ. He this grace and the truth of who God is, the truth of God's power was sufficient. No matter his infirmities, no matter what was going on in his life, no matter what they said about him. By the way, they told Paul that he was the most uneloquent speaker. The, Greek, the Greeks didn't like him, but they were in awe of him <laughs> because of God's glory, because of Christ. Paul went on to write in Ephesians 3.19, he says, and, I, and to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. The fullness of God's glory. That's the goal, to know Christ, to imitate Christ. Paul always said, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't put your faith and hope in a meal or in what you drink, what you wear, and all these things. In everything you do, do it to glorify Christ, to magnify God. When we seek God's glory, it fixes all the what-ifs in our life. Or what about this? Should I do this or shouldn't I do that? God's glory is everything. I like 2 Peter 1.3 in talking about this glory is sufficient in that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. He has called us to his own glory, to, to be united with that glory. And he's granted that to us. He's granted that which would pertain to all of life. Not just life in heaven. A lot of times we think, oh yeah, what a glorious day that'll be when we get to heaven. No, he's forgave us everything we need to deal with now and godliness, knowing him. 
The, thing, the other thing that the implications of God's glory, beholding God's glory is this, is God's glory is very important to him. God does not share his glory. How important is God's glory to him? Well, Psalm 148, yes, here's 148 chapters in Psalms. I think it's 150, right? <laughs> 148 chapters in Psalm, verse 12 through 13, it says this, both young men and maidens, old men and children, and he's talking to all of us, right? Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the heavens and the earth. Acts 12, we hear that Herod, right? Uh, Paul was before, I'm sorry, yeah, Paul was before Herod, and, and he was preaching the gospel, and Herod took glory for himself. Look at all that I, you know, look at this. In Acts 12, in Acts 12, verse 23, it says this happened to Herod because he did not give God the glory. He was eaten by worms and died right before the whole assembly. You think God's glory is important to him? He does not share his glory. King Nebuchadnezzar challenged God right, right to all glory, right? Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He said, this is God. I am God. And God spared Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he punished Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar go, went later on, went out on his veranda and looked at the whole area of Babylon. He said, look at all that I have done. And he glorified himself. And what did God do? Made him into a, a beast of the field, like my cattle, just eating the, the grass. You know, right? Because we don't have a lot of grass. They eat the hay that we give them. <laughs> right? The, so... He was out on all fours, his nails growing, his hair growing, and he just, for years, can you imagine? It's amazing that he lived through it. And after so many years, God gave him back his senses, and he realized he needs to glorify God. You think God's glory is important? It's extremely important. God's glory is very important to reaching people. There's a lot of people say, hey, come, God loves you, and God, God does this, and, God, and they talk about all these promises of God, but they do not expect anybody to respond to God's glory. They don't understand God's glory. They don't behold God's glory. They don't realize that they're a sinner. They don't realize that the deal, that God came, and yes, he loves them because he died for them, paid for their sin. It's interesting, in Isaiah 42, the prophet speaks of the Lord's calling of Israel. He's, he's speaking to Israel. He says, this is your calling. This is why, as a nation of Israel, this is what I want, I want you to be. And he says, and in, in, if you look up the whole chapter, I don't want to go through the whole chapter this morning, but he said, the Lord's calling of Israel is to be a light to the Gentiles, to release the Gentiles from the darkness and false worship of worshiping themselves and these graven images that have no life and they don't produce life. Israel, you are supposed to reflect my glory that they might return to me. The whole reason for Israel wasn't just to destroy all the nations around them. It was to draw people to God's glory. In fact, in verse 6 of Isaiah 42, he says, I am the Lord. That is my name. 
And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to graven image. All glory belongs to God and not to any other created being or thing. When glory is given to man, a beast or created thing is, it dishonors, insults, shames, and gives false witness against God. God's glory is really important. It's amazing. We've talked about a lot of false worship with Hillsong and and Bethel, and it's gotten crazy since I talked about it the last time. They've made up all sorts of crazy things. They've gone so far as to say that the, the pastor, I would use that term loosely, pastor, because he's not really a, sh- he is a shepherd, but he's a false shepherd. And he said of this, he said, God, you know, when, when Jesus came to earth, he was just man. He didn't really, he wasn't fully God. And because of that, we can be just like Jesus. And because Jesus did miraculous things, we do miraculous things. And they began to glorify themselves and they bring glory on all of the things that they try to do. And yet they shut down all of their healing centers because of COVID. That just doesn't make sense. Not one of their healing centers are still open. In fact, they closed down the school. Praise the Lord for COVID. All those pastors that were promoting all of Hillsong's music, both in Houston, both in New York, and and one other city, I can't remember. They're all gone, by the way. They're not even in ministry anymore. They've all denounced God. God, when we glorify in other things, we promote other passions that belong to God, and God alone They give a false witness to God. They give a false God. Because we were meant to reflect our identity, which is God's glory. We are not meant to reflect some other identity or thing or passion. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. He said, let us make man in our image. Talking about the Trinity In the image of God, he created him. In fact, in in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, he says, and to put on, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true or complete, the idea true there, complete righteousness and holiness, speaking to God's glory. Why is God's glory important? Because of this, God's glory is everything. I want to ask you a series of questions as we close. If you and I are going to preserve in serving the Lord in ministry and others, if we are to have staying power in the midst of these difficult times, if we, you and I are to provide spiritual leadership in the church, into our community, and in ministry to the Lord in which he has entrusted, and you know, the Lord which he has entrusted to us, we're going to do that. We must pray ourselves the same prayer that Moses did. Show me your glory. We must be like John and behold God's glory. This is what all of us need to think about. Are we beholding, are we worshiping God's glory, or are we worshiping something else?
Is your spiritual life or your spiritual heart lukewarm? Are you just getting by? Is your heart in need of rekindling? Then pray this. God, I need to behold your glory. Moses wanted to see his glory in Exodus chapter 20. I need your glory. I want to see your glory. God says, you can't handle my glory. You will fry. You'll die. Moses knew that it wasn't about the law that God gave, but it was about his glory. I want to see your glory. God gave us his glory in Christ. We need God's glory so our heart will be ignited with passion and love for God in Christ. Do you need to know God's will for your life? Do you have pressing decisions before you? Do you have decisions on how to be a good steward of the things in your life and what path you might pursue in your life? Well, this is one of the number one things. Ecclesiastes, where we're going to be in a few weeks, chapter 12 says, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God. To know God's glory is the answer to God's will in your life. Do you need strength for the many demands upon your life? Maybe you have a lot of pressure on your life because of things going on. Do you need encouragement? Do you need peace? Do you need joy? Run to Christ. He is God's glory. If you are in the flesh, seeking other glory, you will not see and behold this magnificent glory. Come to God. Come to Christ. Relent. Turn to Him. He gave everything for you. You know, so many times we have a hard time. We say, I just don't want to give up my passions for God's glory. I'm going to lose something. What can you lose that adds up to God's glory? There is nothing in all of the world that can compare to God's glory. Run to Christ. He is our life. The very essence of God's glory. Full of grace. Full of truth. The truth of who God is. Filled with grace. Come to him if you're heavy and laden. And he will give you rest. Lord, I thank you for this glorious verse that packed so much about who you are. There's great implications, and I pray that it would give us great joy to pursue you, that we would realize that pursuing you is everything, that we might receive that which is truly important. We cannot receive your glory in pursuing the things of the flesh, but you have promised that if we we sow the seeds of the Spirit, the things your very nature of your glory, if we sow those things in our life, if we pursue those things in our life, then the things of the Spirit will grow and we'll see your hand at work in our life. I pray that we can be a church family that beholds 
and magnifies and reflects your glory to one another and to our community to love one another with an everlasting love, not a superficial love. When we can't stand each other, when we irritate each other, may your glory shine upon us that we might be filled with both grace and truth, not just focusing on who is right or who is wrong, but filled with love and compassion and your righteousness as we seek to build everlasting relationships through you. We ask, Lord, that all would understand that they cannot have a relationship with you apart from Christ because of that very nature, that glory that Christ has. When he died on the cross for our sins, he imparts that gift to us when we humbly come and we fall down because of his glory, because of that glorious act, we throw ourselves before him, before you at the cross, and we say, save me from my sin, from who I am, my incompleteness, my lack of holiness, my lack of glory. Save me. Lord, I pray that you would restore these individuals, that they might bow before you and give their life to you. You have said that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, calling me, calls upon to save them, call upon them for salvation, like somebody drowning in, in the deepest sea, that they call out for help, that if they call upon your name, that your name, which is glorious and above all names, that you will save them. That Lord, I pray that if there's someone watching or there's someone here, that they would do that this morning that they would give you glory and not worry about glorifying themselves and that they'd be saved and that they'd behold this miraculous, glorious salvation, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen.